0: Welcome
1: to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS Pod. I am Lalita Duperan, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia all our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu Today, I welcome on the sasspot Aidan Milleff, who is a current Walter H. Shorenstein Asia-Pacific Research Center postdoctoral fellow on Contemporary Asia. He obtained his PhD in political science at MIT. His research combines computational social science and qualitative tools to answer questions about the cognitive, emotional, and social forces that shape political violence, migration, post violence politics and the politics of south asia and today i will be asking him all about his research his time at stanford and his future plans after this lengthy introduction aidan welcome to the SAS Spot. how are you
2: oh uh, thank you for having me it's uh, it's great to be here and i'm doing very well
1: thank you i'm i'm uh, i'm glad to have you um i'd like to start by you introducing yourself Uh, and telling us what you would like people to know about you.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, Your introduction captured it well, but uh, I guess what I can add is I'm a political scientist basically trying to understand the politics of violence. And within that really broad area, uh, I focus a lot on how people behave during and after violence, how people make choices about things like participating in a conflict, migrating away from it and also how people form opinions about conflict and violence. And then across all of those kind of big, broad thematic questions, I focus a lot on South Asia. And in South Asia, I'm trying to understand both the history and the future of violent politics in India and a little bit in Afghanistan. And because I'm an empirical social scientist, I use a lot of different tools to do this work. And that, that ranges all the way from things like interviews with survivors of violence, using oral histories, But I also do things like run decision-making experiments and use survey data and all kinds of data from from governments and companies. So kind of anything that can help us get a handle on questions about what it is like to experience violence and how people make choices and and kind of try to make the best of bad situations they find themselves in.
1: And so when uh, when you say, uh, when you talk about the decisions, How, how does one get information from people who decide to engage in violence?
2: Yeah, so um, there are a couple of different ways. Most of it, to be clear, is after the fact, right? Uh, For people who are studying violence, one of the one of the major challenges we confront is that the settings that we're trying to study are not very good settings to be doing research and doing primary data collection. And so that means that a lot of us spend a huge amount of time and effort coming up with what we hope are creative ways to capture the experiences of people without putting ourselves at risk, putting them at more risk, uh, and you know, essentially having to rely on on fate or chance in order to be in the right place at the right time. So we do a lot of things, or, or I especially do a lot of things with uh, retrospection and asking people about experiences that they've survived. Um Now there are of course uh, uh, challenges with that. All of us know that our memories are imperfect, sometimes in pretty systematic ways, but uh, it to me seems far better than going and trying to talk to people while they're engaged in violence.
1: Tell us a little bit about the difference uh, between India and Afghanistan. Obviously, not in terms of countries, but in terms of your work. How 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 does violence look different in those two places that you mention, uh, vis-a-vis South Asia?
2: Yeah. So the way that I contrast India and Afghanistan um, in different chapters of a book project I'm working on, actually, uh, is is that in India, you know. Well, let's, let's maybe step back for a second and say that India, since its independence in 1947, has seen a lot of different episodes of political violence. There have been many wars of secession. There have been many riots. There have been a lot of instances of you know, other types of political violence in India. But this is all happening within the uh, boundaries of what has been a remarkably successful and developmental state. Uh, for the last 75 plus years. So in India, you know, you're looking at um, uh, violence that breaks out in a setting that is is like moving forward in a lot of really important ways. And there are these intense uh, negative and destructive experiences that people face, but they are the exception for most of the population. In Afghanistan, what I'm looking at is how people adapt to an environment where the state has been relatively weak or not even present in their lives for decades. Right. Uh, especially in rural Afghanistan prior to, um, well, certainly prior to 1979, um, when, when the Soviet backed government, uh, came to power in Kabul, there just wasn't all that much governance in the rural areas. And, uh, it was, it was a very weak state in that regard. And, you know, pretty much since then, since 1979, continuing roughly till today, um, people in Afghanistan have dealt with higher or lower levels of violence for for all of those decades. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very different story of, you know, kind of what the background conditions are like, whether instability is the exception or the rule over the course of a person's lifespan. Uh, And so in Afghanistan, I'm looking more at how changes in the nature of violence over time change people's behavior. And in India, I'm looking especially at how these faster rising, really intense episodes of abnormal violence shape people's lives.
1: Now, you sound mainly like an anthropologist, um, and I say this with the greatest respect to anthropologists, let's be clear on that. You also sound a little bit like a historian, but you do not yet to me, and I'm, I'm I'm a complete amateur when it comes to assigning discipline, like a political scientist. Um, You haven't yet used the word controlling for." that's not a word, a phrase. (laughs) Um, What makes this a political science project and not one of the other projects? Or would you like to argue that uh, this is interdisciplinary?
2: Well, that's that's a really nice question. And I should say first that I don't think anthropologists or historians would claim me once they got to know me. (laughs) But um...
1: fair, I guess.
2: The way that I think this work ties back to politics is that it's it's about power. And you know, when we study political science, we're we're studying a million different phenomena in the world, but um, one thing that ties most of them together is questions about power: who has it, how does it get apportioned through elections, through uh, you know autocratic regimes, and what are the effects of different people wielding it. Um, this is is what characterizes a lot of studies of political violence, too. When we're studying political violence, we're not only studying these intense, uh, potentially life-on-the-line kind of circumstances, we're studying someone exercising power against someone else. And I think that the political content of my work really comes down to understanding how those exercises of power uh, affect uh, uh, civilians. And also how people's expectations about the future and the future distribution of power, which is another really like fundamental component of politics is negotiating uncertainty about the future, uh, how that affects people's behavior as well. So the politics is pretty buried in my work, um, but I I think it is really there right at the heart of it. Uh, And if you want me to say controlling for, I do control for a bunch of stuff and I'd be happy to talk about it, but uh, I don't always think that's the most interesting part.
1: Thank you for the offer, April. Well, let's, see, let's see how we go. Um, and now audience, I'm, I'm gonna start, uh, I'm gonna take a little break here uh, just to remind everyone to please rate and review the SASPOT. The fact that you're here listening to it suggests to me uh, that you must be, if not enjoying it, getting something out of it. And it would be really wonderful if we could bring the podcast to other people who are just looking online uh, and uh, rating and reviewing really really works the algorithm so please uh, pause the podcast for a moment go and do that and then come back to it and we will still be here that's the most amazing thing about a podcast thank you so much uh, back to Aiden. so uh, even though you're not a historian I get it uh, but much of what you do does appear to be based on oral histories and so i'm curious are these current interviews that you conduct or do you rely on existing archives and if the latter where are those archives
2: yeah so i rely on on a real mix of sources uh and you know as you said one of the big projects that i've I've spent a lot of time on in the past few years and something that i'm working on turning into a book right now uses oral histories and interviews to try and understand civilians' experiences of the Punjab crisis, um, kind of broadly defined to include the 1984 anti Sikh pogroms in India, as well as the kind of rural insurgency before and after that.
0: Mm -hmm. Now,
2: I'm using oral histories in this case because I'm trying to understand how people perceived the environments they were facing, basically how they interpreted these really chaotic uncertain circumstances. And I'm trying to see whether or not those interpretations can tell us something about the way they behave. Um, Whether those interpretations, I'll now use some political science language, whether those interpretations have an independent predictive power, even after we're accounting for things like people's uh, socioeconomic status, their demographic background, and the environments they're facing. I find that they do, and that Some portion of the variation that we see in in the actions people take during violence, you know, why does one brother flee to the United States and the other brother continues living in Punjab, comes down to differences of opinion in how people perceive the circumstances they're facing, specifically how much power they think they have to confront the things that threaten them, and how uncertain or unpredictable the future of violence is in in their immediate surroundings. So these are kind of tough things to measure in any circumstance. Um, they're especially tough to measure in history, right? So I'm trying to get basically really, really rich testimony from people who made these kind of decisions in real life and, uh, and who then you know, explained them and, and explained their stories to someone after the fact. I started doing that through interviews that I conducted where I reached out to people who survived the Punjab crisis and I sat down to talk with them about their experience, how they made the choices they made, uh, and, and what shaped those choices. Well before I was affiliated at Stanford, I was actually driving up and down the peninsula and around the Bay Area in an old Honda Accord doing interviews with people who migrated during the Punjab crisis and settled in the Bay Area in the Central Valley of California. Uh, I then went and did a bunch more interviews in Delhi in March 2020. Um, talking to people who had survived primarily the 1984 pogroms and then stayed put. Now, that series of interviews in Delhi uh, got brought to an abrupt halt uh, by the COVID lockdowns in late March of 2020. And that's actually when I shifted to the oral histories. Mm. So in addition to these interviews that I did myself, I also consult a pretty big archive of oral histories or testimony from people who survived the same violence, people who survived the Punjab crisis, and told their stories to basically a community history project called the 1984 Living History Project, which is run by a a thick civil society activists in the Bay Area. And so I was able to use those oral histories to uh, do a couple of things. One is... Gather more observations. Um, you know, I, I increased the total number of, of interviews that I was analyzing from dozens to hundreds, which is is great for empirical social science.
1: Sure.
2: The other thing it allowed me to do is talk to a bunch of people who I otherwise wouldn't have been able to talk to. Some people recorded interviews in the early 2010s for this this 1984 Living History project, but had passed away by 2019 when I was doing my original interviews. Other people maybe wouldn't have agreed to be interviewed by a PhD student, but were willing to share their history and their, share their story publicly with members of their community in this like public website. So uh, oral histories actually opened up a lot of new opportunities to, uh, to understand people's choices, but the initial decision to use them was kind of born out of a scramble during the COVID lockdown in 2020.
1: So. Um, two questions. Um, a quick one, I hope. <laughs> um, what about the ethics of that? So, so somebody doesn't want to talk to you, but they're willing to share their story with a community of people that look like them and have have, have been through experiences. Can they? Do they sign off for future research? And, and are there oral histories that you don't have access to because people have said this is private?
2: Yeah, so that's a really good question. And, you know, it's important to think about Social scientists, we, we've we gotten quite good about thinking about it with primary data collection when we're doing interviews or we're doing surveys. But it's also important, like you, like you mentioned, to think about with secondary data usage. Am I using this uh, in a way that that kind of accords with the spirit in which it was shared? Right. And what you have to do in that circumstance, because you can't go back to each of these people individually uh, and, and re-seek their permission, is you have to rely on a good partner. And in this case, uh, that means relying on good institutions and good rules in the archive that collected the oral histories. So two things that make me feel more confident that this was kind of carried out in the spirit that the the people represented in the archive would would be comfortable with, is that they actually all did provide informed consent kind of to the standard we would recognize in social science at the time that they recorded their interviews. Mm -hmm. So they're aware that, um, you know, their testimony is going to be widely and publicly shared. And you can see across some of the videos in the archive, that there have been uh, various accommodations made to respect people's various levels of comfort with that wide and public distribution. Mm -hmm. Some videos, actually, and this, uh, this came up in a different project for me, where I was trying to understand the emotions people were expressing by coding their, their facial expressions in these videos. Um, but a couple of videos uh, focus on people's hands. The camera is pointed downward at their hands or their faces. Some videos just call the, the people represented Mr. Singh or Ms. Kaur, which in the Sikh community is uh, not exactly a family name. Right. It doesn't identify people individually. Right. So, um, That's one guard is that I know that people provided informed consent and that the data were initially collected in, in a way that I would do it myself. And the second is that I went and got permission from the archive to use the oral histories in this way. And I kind of trusted them to be a steward of the stories that they'd collected. And I told them what I wanted to do and sought their permission to, to do research using these data. And I think those kind of steps are really important, even when, you know, Uh, I wouldn't have to go get a university IRB approval for this part of the project because it doesn't count as human subjects data um, according to university lawyers. But I think it's an important part of respect for the community that you're trying
1: to understand and study. For sure, for sure. Thank you for addressing that so um, comprehensively. Um, I wanna talk about your conclusions, but before I do that, I'm just curious about the methodology because when you go for an interview, when you go and interview someone, you have targeted questions. You can follow up. You can steer them in a certain direction. Um, when when somebody else conducted the interview, you just have data and that's it. So presumably, then there are gaps, but also presumably you get data that you didn't know you needed or didn't know you wanted. So do you have a preferred route, or is the mix particularly powerful? Can you say a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, of course. Uh, I think like you said, the mix is really what's powerful. One of the amazing advantages of oral histories is that the kind of questions that are asked or the kind of guide that structures these history testimonies, they're really broad questions like tell me what happened or on this pivotal date, where were you? What do you remember? And from the answers that people give to those kind of questions, you get a lot of information you may not have known to seek, and it makes oral histories a really great tool for discovery. Mm -hmm. um as you pointed out that same structure presents a bit of a challenge for theory testing the way we do it in social science right like when I was structuring my original interviews I had questions that pertained to each of the variables that I was interested in measuring and so I could guarantee that at the end of an interview as long as we hadn't you know chosen to stop due to respondent's discomfort or something like that I could guarantee that I was driving away with uh Uh, measurement of my independent and my dependent variables, and that that was an observation I could use. Now, in the oral histories, because people are basically just being asked to say what happened, you're not guaranteed a measure of the variables you care about. And that is something that I, I have to deal with. There are a number of histories that are very, very valuable testimony, but don't happen to measure the things that I care about for this project, and so they end up getting dropped from the final data set. Now, there's one more little benefit embedded in here that I think is actually kind of important. Um, in an interview setting, whether it's a podcast, a visa interview, someone doing an interview for a political science dissertation, uh, there are these like cross-cultural norms of politeness that mean that when you ask me a question, I do my best to give you an answer. And you know, I'll promise that I'm not making these up on the spot) in, <laughs> in the way that some people might, but we know this from survey research in American politics, especially Uh, if you ask people for an opinion on something, a lot of times they'll do their darndest to give you an opinion, whether or not it's an opinion that they held before you brought up that survey question. Um, We kind of call these and, you know, uh, this phenomenon is part of what we would call like demand effects Mm -hmm. in, um, in, in survey research, where, Uh, the thing you measure is only observable because you are measuring it. Right. Oral histories don't have that problem, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, If people didn't think that their perceptions of relative power or their perceptions of uncertainty were very important, no one in the oral history testimony was going to ask them about it directly, so maybe they just wouldn't say anything. And there's no situation in which they're going to do their best to be polite to me as the interviewer and try to provide an answer to my question if they think it's nonsensical
1: over to your conclusions you in so in the example of the Punjabi brothers that you mentioned earlier and this perception of power and one stays and one leaves um what's what what pattern are you discerning then having controlled for lots of things?
2: yes, absolutely <laughs> um. What pattern am I discerning? In general, people who feel like they have more agency, people who feel like they have more relative power, seem to be more comfortable with approaching the source of a threat. Mm-hmm. This might mean trying to engage with a threat nonviolently. This might mean trying to fight back against aggressors. But in general, closing distance between yourself and something that threatens you is a more attractive option if you feel like you have some agency and some power. People who feel really powerless tend to withdraw. This by itself is not a, a terribly new finding. This is something that psychologists have seen in lab studies for, for decades now at a much smaller scale. Um, but I think it is relatively new to show it at the scale of like these major decisions about aggression and migration during violence. So relative power seems to shape your direction of travel, and your perception of uncertainty seems to shape your urgency or how disruptive of a change you're willing to make in order to deal with the threat you feel like you're facing. So people who perceive deep uncertainty in the future, they feel like violence is really unpredictable and it's just hard to make sense of what's happening in the world, they respond more drastically in ways that disrupt their lives more so this might be like migrating from punjab to another state in india making it all the way to california and then people who feel like they kind of understand the the patterns and the rhythms of violence understand the threats that they're facing they seem to try to make smaller modifications they try and preserve some sense of normalcy don't massively overreact although you know i i, I shouldn't say overreact because that's a value judgment that that um I don't think is very meaningful in this circumstance. But uh, people try to take smaller actions to adapt to the situations they find themselves in. And so that leads us to, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So that leads us to kind of four outcomes here. Um, People who feel some sense of relative power, but really uncertain about the future, they should be the likeliest to consider aggression. People who feel no relative power and no sense of certainty about the future, they're the people who are most likely to migrate typically. And then people who feel a greater sense of certainty, they're either going to try and engage non-violently with the source of the threat. Think about this like uh, adapting to rebel governance, say a person in Iraq uh, living under ISIS rule might try to actually work with the government if they feel some sense of relative power and some sense of like you know violence is governed by a set of rules that I understand, and then people who feel like uh, they don't have any power but they kind of understand the rules of the game, they just try not to play, they withdraw, try to reduce their exposure to a threat in the pogroms in Delhi, uh, these people often manifested this kind of withdrawal by hiding in their homes, even hiding in in furniture to try and escape the notice of the mobs. Mm-hmm.
1: So that the latter point, the hiding and and trying to just make yourself invisible, I guess, that resonates with the sense of having no power and a lot of fear. Yeah. But the migration piece I don't get. I get that somebody would get in their car um, or other mode of transport and go to another state within India, presumably also their networks and their safety. But what we know about international immigration, especially coming into the United States, to me, it feels like only the powerful can make that journey. The the thought that someone's so powerless or perceives themselves to be so powerless and so without any hope um, in in their own location, but makes it possible to even get through to an interview, through an interview interview can you say a little bit more how that actually makes sense to you because it doesn't make sense to me
2: sure yeah and to be clear the people who end up in the us i think that we can say pretty uncontroversially are people who have access to pretty substantial economic and pretty substantial social resources in okay. india um now i think based on based on talking to a lot of people who have made these decisions that uh the desire to flee kind of comes first you say oh my god this situation is horrible i don't understand what's going on i don't feel like i can do anything to change it i have to get out of here mm-hmm. and once you reach that conclusion then you know your family connections the amount of money you have might come into play in determining whether getting out of here means like going from delhi to Chalandhar, or going from Delhi to San Jose. Yeah, so that's that's one thing that I think is pretty important. Uh, I think that when when you start to talk about picking destinations, a bunch of these uh, variables about uh, you know economic resources, social resources start to come back into play in a major way. But the other thing I would say is that um, you know the, the the kind of common sense framework that you laid out. How could a person who has so much power feel so powerless that actually really represents the the state of the literature on this question in some ways um the idea that structure is destiny and that if you have a lot of resources um those resources are really going to shape how you behave in the world that is certainly true to an extent you know that 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 conforms to certain broad patterns we see in in who migrates and when What I think my work is saying is that not all people who have that same amount of power feel equally powerful. And that conditional on a certain level of advantage, perceptions really do matter in shaping people's uh, preferences over what to do. So a person who has a lot of cash, potentially is able to migrate to the United States, um, might still end up feeling powerless because they feel like they're confronted with an overwhelming threat or... Um, you know, they feel like their money won't help them. They feel like their money makes them more of a target even. There are a bunch of different things, uh, that, There are a bunch of different ways this could play out. But I think the the main point that I would make there is that, you know, money is just money until you interpret what it means and what it's for. And, you know, there's actually more variation than we might often think in how different people or even the same people in different circumstances would make that interpretation.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That Thank you for clarifying that. Um, of course, we're delighted that you're at Stanford, um, but I'm wondering what makes Stanford a good place for you to do your work?
2: Yeah, well, I'm delighted to be at Stanford too, uh, <laughs> especially on a lovely day like today. Um, you know, Stanford has been a great place to do this work for a couple of different reasons. One of them is the the South Asia community, which is spread across a ton of different departments and centers, but but is very strong. And I guess it's kind of convened at the the South Asia Center over in Encina Commons. Uh, So having colleagues who are interested in the same area of the world, coming from all kinds of different disciplinary perspectives has has made this a really special place
1: to be. That's so great. Um, Thank you for the shout out to the center. Yeah,
2: of course, yeah. You know, the other cool thing about being in the Bay Area is actually connection to the community, uh, to the diaspora community that's really important to the work that I'm doing. Um, the Punjabi, specifically the Sikh diaspora in, in the Bay Area and the Central Valley has been... A uh, really important uh, uh, source of of assistance, source of data for the research that I'm doing, and so it's nice to be in a position to interact more directly with that community. Uh, being based in the Bay Area this year,
1: fantastic. Um, what, where will you be going next? Do you know where you will be going next?
2: Yeah, so I'm I'm driving all the way back across the country this summer, uh, and. I'm starting a job as a, a assistant professor at Florida State University in the Political Science Department.
1: Fantastic!
2: Um, and I'm, I'm very excited to be joining the faculty there and continuing this research, and also being back in a classroom for the first time in a few years.
1: Congratulations on that! Thank you. Um, in addition to your work on South Asia, I I know that you're working in other areas, and and maybe you can speak briefly to um, the, the the places where you're working, but also how um how these outcomes um are the same or different in different places like does location matter we you already talked about india and afghanistan but all other things being somewhat equal does location matter or or do you find human behavior ultimately is predictably ish the same ish that's how i'm going to frame it
2: <laughs> yeah predictably ish the same ish i like that um <laughs> There so, you go, the
1: title of your next book.
2: Very good, <laughs> yeah. You're already first. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, am, I am doing this kind of work and kind of trying to test similar principles uh, using data from Afghanistan and from Kenya. I've also done some public opinion surveys in the United States. And it's basically to develop an empirical answer to this question of does location matter? My punch is that it doesn't matter as much as we think. Mm -hmm. Because the explanations that I'm trying to put forward here, and that seem to work pretty well in India, are about how people perceive their surroundings. And those processes should be relatively similar across space and across cultures. So I expect to see a lot of convergence. Um, I think the biggest... Divergences will come in people facing different kinds of violence. I think the way people or the extent to which people agree or disagree about how to perceive different kinds of violence might drive some differences between India and Afghanistan, say, or India and these public opinion surveys in the United States. But I expect and hope that there's a lot of consistency across places because I, I think this is a story about people and how they make choices. And I don't think there's anything special about. Um, you know, Indians and in how they make choices, or Sikhs and how they make choices, That that is, is doing most of the explanatory work here.
1: Well, we we'll look forward to finding out more as your research goes on. Um, I want to end with a, a kind of a holistic question, I guess, uh, which is that you spend your time, or a lot of your time, in violence. You You, you study violence, you listen to people describing violence. Um, this doesn't, I mean, I know you love what you do, but it doesn't sound like it's always the most relaxing uh, topic to be spending your time with. How do you take care of yourself?
2: Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And you're right. It's not the most relaxing. Um, and part of that is because, uh, there's a certain amount of, of gravity, which, with which you have to treat these experiences that people are relaying.
1: For sure, um,
2: it might be the twenty-fifth or thirtieth interview that I'm doing in a series, but um, for the person who's talking, they're often recounting one of the worst days of their lives, mm-hmm. and and so you you have to be very serious when you go into each one of those encounters. For sure. Um, how do I take care of myself? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing is that there's now quite a community of people who do this kind of work in political science. And talking with other people in that community has been very valuable. Um, The other thing that's been useful to me, and I won't lie that being in California makes this easier to do in a lot of ways, is uh, uh, building a bit of a higher boundary between work and non-work and uh, trying to um, give a lot of attention and energy and respect to these stories about violence and displacement when I'm working. And then also allow time for them to kind of not be the center of my focus and to do something like be in the ocean or be in the trees
1: um california has much to offer by way of escape for sure um aiden miller thank you so much for making time for me today this was a really fantastic conversation i'm very grateful to you
2: well thank you this was a lot of fun
1: As always, a big vote of gratitude to Son Shiva for the intro and outro to the SASPOD and to Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.